0: According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth, in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures, once again. Join me, if you would, in the book of Leviticus. We started Leviticus last night. We got through three chapters. Way too fast. Way too fast. You understand that? In a a walk-through format, in a through-the-Bible format, we are just flying at, at record speed. Tonight we're going to cover chapters 4, 5, and 6. Again, it's going to be way too fast, although um, I expect we'll be able to slow down a little bit and start to get into some of the details maybe that we couldn't get into last night. Uh, no promises, though, and if you have questions, I'll do my best, but I've, I've been very upfront and honest that uh, out, of, out of all 66 books of the Bible, Leviticus is right Right there at number 65 or 66 somewhere. It's, it's, it's close. Okay. It's in, it's one of my top favorites. But, uh, yeah. All right. Let's open with a word of prayer, calling upon our Father and His faithfulness to bless our time of day. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the privilege and blessing we have to assemble together. And we call upon your faithfulness, Father, to bless our time of study. That you would open our eyes, open our ears, soften our hearts. And Father, we do we do joke a bit about Leviticus, and and uh, of course we we love every aspect of your word, Father, as we love you. And so we we submit to your will. We humble ourselves. We thank you for being faithful. We thank you and praise you, Father, for taking things that don't necessarily apply, but the principles clearly do. So, Father, we want to, uh, we want to appreciate what you're teaching us here tonight. We do thank you, Father, and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. So, again, I hope I don't give the wrong impression when it comes to Leviticus. Um, it is, um, we are not Levitical. We are not Levitical priests. We are New Testament church age saints. And so since much of the book of Leviticus applies to then, we, can, we have to stop and be careful to say is this is not for us to apply literally. We're not going to do animal sacrifices. We're not going to build a temple. We're not going to try to turn America into some kind of a theocracy or uh, anything of the nature uh, of that nature. But the principles carry across because Leviticus is the book of holiness. Uh, that God is holy. Israel was to be holy. We are to be holy. And what does it mean to be holy? And a holy people. Israel was a holy people. And that included their diet. That included their clothing. That included their their worship. That included the the sacrifices that they brought. That included the priesthood, and and all of the meticulous detail that was required for them to approach the holiness of God. And it was it's very vivid in the way that it was given. And I think that's why, of course, it's in the canon of Scripture. It's a part of the uh, the Bible that will never uh, pass away, not one jot, not one tittle. This is the, the canon of Scripture that we must be uh, subject to. So we don't uh, rip Leviticus out of our Bible or pretend it's not there. We read it, we're appreciative for it, and we make the, the doctrinal applications as we uh, as we understand them. So Where were we yesterday? Chapter 1 was the burnt offering, the whole burnt offering was called in Hebrew the olah, the whole burnt offering. Chapter 2 we went into the grain offering and we saw that. Chapter 3 the peace offering, All right. Now we've got two more coming up in chapter 4 and chapter 5. So we have the sin offering and we have the trespass offering. Very similar um, but not identical. And so we've got to be clear on what these are all about as well. So let's get to the sin offerings here. In Leviticus chapter 4, this is the fourth offering described by the Lord. It's called the sin offering. And really, it spans more than chapter 4. It spills over into the first few verses of chapter 5. So from 4.1 to 5.13, you have the sin offering. The sin offering is the, uh, the cheta'ath. Uh, uh, it's hard to pronounce. Chata'ath offering, Strong's number 2403, which is actually the word for sin. The same word for sin is also the word for the sin offering. And uh, and we see it here. Alright, so let's take a look at it. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the sons of Israel saying, if a person sins unintentionally in any of the things which the Lord had commanded not to be done and commits any of them, if the anointed priest sins so as to bring guilt on the people, then let him offer to the Lord a bull without defect as a sin offering for the sin he has committed. I mentioned last night as well, if these I've done so much coloring in the last two weeks to get ready for for Leviticus that the coloring was for my sake. I, I'm, I was giving different codes, different symbols, different things. So the uh, the red X with a black highlight that's the chata'ah, that's for the sin offering. Okay, and then the uh, the I colored it pink. The word for unintentionally. And we're going to talk about this tonight. How do you sin unintentionally? Okay? We're going to talk about that. And then the korban, the, the, the general term for offering, the thing that you're bringing, the gift that you're bringing. Um, I've got symbols for, for all of these things. Also, every time the hand gets put on the head, I put a box around that. Okay? Because we have it so many times where we have the identification with the sinner who's identifying with the substitute, with the sacrifice that's taking the place of the sinner. And so uh, I've got symbols for all of that. I've got little blood droplets every time blood gets mentioned. I underline the word altar every time the altar shows up with a green double underline there. okay. The burnt offering is uh, is a, a brownish tan uh, highlight. So anyway, you're going to see a whole lot of those. I'll leave them on just for my sake, although I may, if they get too distracting and, and people are bothered by them um, I, don't, I can toggle them on and off at a moment's notice. That's not really a problem. Alright, the sin offering covered, where did I stop? I stopped with verse 3. Alright, he shall bring the bull to the doorway of the tent of meeting before the Lord and he shall lay his hand on the head of the bull and slay the bull before the Lord. Just like we saw last night, the priests aren't the ones doing the the killing, it's the offerer, it's the person who's bringing the animal. You bring it, you kill it. Okay? And then the uh, the priest is going to take over after that. He's going to administer the blood and and the different things that need to happen. So the person, the offerer who's bringing the animal kills the animal after he puts his hand on the head to identify. Then the priest is to take some of the blood of the bull and bring it to the tent of meeting. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle some of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary." So, this is a little bit different on the procedure and, and it 's good to go back it 's good to review what happens. you know who does the killing, who does the cutting, who does the, the blood sprinkling? Where does the blood go? Does it go on the altar or does it go on the veil before the veil? All these are, are the differences that, that, like I said last night, just make my head spin and I, and I lose track and so it 's probably a good thing that that i 'm not a Levitical priest. I would have died quicker than Nadab and Abihu. Because not just through, I, I wouldn't have brought strange fire or anything intentionally, I would have just missed, you know, lost some of the details and done something wrong. Alright. Before we get too much further down into that, let's let's back up to verse 2 and talk about the unintentional sins. The sin offering covered unintentional sins. And the adjective that describes this, the idea of shagag, uh, Strong's number 7683. To sin ignorantly, inadvertently. It's a, it's a sin of an error. It's not premeditated. That's the big difference. And we've got to be careful. We want to make sure that we're using the Bible's definitions, not our definitions. We want to keep it consistent with how it's used. Remember, not just the definition that you get in a lexicon or a dictionary, but in the actual usage of the term throughout the Old Testament, I think, gives us the best understanding of this. Because honestly, the idea of an unintentional sin, if I'm going to invest the, the concept of, of modern English with what it means to be intentional versus unintentional, then uh, then I think we're going to have some problems. And we, we want to stick with the the biblical usage so that we're clear on on what's happening here. So let's let's start with that. Uh, really the, the clearest contrast that's going to be found is going to be in Numbers 15 because it's used throughout Leviticus 4, it's used throughout Leviticus 5. It applies both to the sin offering and the trespass offering. Both sin offering and trespass offering are for the unintentional sins. If you sin deliberately, high-handedly, if you sin willfully, if you sin defiantly, okay, then neither one of these sacrifices is applicable. You're going to be, you're going to remain ineligible for um, for the uh, ritual ceremonial purity that these sins speak to. So let's let's start with that. Um, Numbers chapter 15, and we have these sins that are done either intentionally or defiantly, and we have the contrast there. So. Leviticus uh, 15.24 says it shall be if it is done unintentionally. Notice, without the knowledge of the congregation. So it's just done in ignorance, okay? There's no knowledge, there's no awareness. Then all the congregation shall offer one bowl for a burnt offering as a soothing aroma to the Lord with its grain offering and its drink offering according to the ordinance and one male goat for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for all the congregation of the sons of Israel and they will be forgiven, for it was an error. And, and most of our sins of omission fall under this category. Just because we don't know, we're ignorant, we're not aware of the fact that we're committing a sin of omission. Other uh, sins that are done in ignorance, other sins that are done in, in, uh, in error. I think uh, this is the phrase that's also used Yeah, you see, here's the the contrast is defiantly. Okay? And I think that's useful as well. Because when we see unintentional, we want to contrast it with intentional, right? Like, I meant to do it, I didn't mean to do it. Okay? And that's not the contrast the Bible's making. The Bible is contrasting the unintentional with the defiant, with the high hand, with the brazen defiance. And a significant difference there. And that's not. The, the, the synonym we would think of it as with, with our understanding of intentional versus unintentional, okay? Um, also when you get into the, the, the uh, uh, provision for a mans, uh, manslayer, the difference between premeditated murder and an accidental manslaying, like two men that are struggling in the field and, uh, and one struck the other one and the other one did eventually die, okay? Well it happened but it was not a premeditated murder. It was an unintentional manslaughter as the men were fighting and one of them happened to die. So that man is then able to flee. He's able to go to a city of refuge, he's going to get a fair trial, everything's going to be investigated, Um, there will be a penalty, he'll have to do restitution, there'll be things that will apply if in fact he's found innocent, that he's not a murderer he's simply a manslayer and that's going to be a a different charge. But it comes down to what's premeditated. Okay, if you plot it, if you plan it, if, you've, if you're trying to cover your tracks and get away with it. I mean, it, the Mosaic law is going to be clear when it comes to a murderer and the premeditation as opposed to an accidental manslaughter. And that's going to come up as well. Alright, so um, we have the contrast there. Now in chapter 4 we're going to have different sins that are brought by the high priest in verses 3-12. through 12. Okay, If the anointed priest is the one that commits this sin then here's the procedures to follow. Uh, if it's the congregation, if it's the whole congregation of Israel that commits error and the matter escapes notice of the assembly, well then there's going to be procedures there. Or if it's a political leader when a leader sins, again unintentionally. Okay? That could be a tribal leader, it could be a clan leader, it could be a family leader, any of the the, uh, the civic leaders of the nation. But again, it's unintentionally. Once it's made known to him, if a sin which he committed is made known to him and then uh, you know, someone brings it up and says, wait a minute, you're in violation. And he's, oh, I didn't know. Okay? Or I didn't mean to. Or I just, I didn't think about it. Okay? And this is where I think Arnold Fruchtenbaum also puts in the impulsive sins. The sins that, that you didn't intend to do, but carnality got a hold of you, and, and there you go. <laughs> okay? And, and I think that's useful. I think Arnold's on to something there with respect to uh, a sin that you, yes, you submitted to the sin nature. Yes, you made the choice to do it, but you didn't think it through. You didn't intend to do it. And that's a huge difference. And I think that keeps it in the biblical definition and does not take it to where we might otherwise want to take it with just our pure understanding of intentional versus unintentional. Okay, Because you can still make the choice to do it if you're submitting to your sin nature. Again, these aren't the easiest things to work our way through, but I think... um, It helps if we keep it within the examples that we have in the Scriptures, okay? And so simply um, submitting to the sin nature, uh, simply failing in a a carnality impulse, um, that's that's fully uh, available for a sin offering, okay? Because you didn't premeditate with a high hand, you did not decide to live in open defiance flagrantly in rebellion against the sovereignty of God. Hope that makes sense. All right, so we have uh, the issues there. So by the high priest, by the whole congregation of Israel, by the leaders, by the common people, Uh, verses twenty-seven through thirty-five. Now, if any one of the common people sins unintentionally, and the phrase of the common people, as if you know. (laughs) <laughs> There's, there are degrees, okay? From the high priest to the political leaders to, now we're down to the, uh, the common people. Well, they've got sin offerings as well. And, and each, of the, each of these degrees also, the animals get cheaper. Okay, So the high priest has the most expensive um, that he has to bring the bull. But the common people, they can bring a goat. And so a female without defect for his sin which he has committed shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and slay the sin offering at the place of the burnt offering. And the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger, put it on the horns of the altar of the burnt offering. Now there's a different place for it, the horns of the altar. Okay, That's different from going inside the temple or going inside the tent and sprinkling it seven times before the veil. That's what had, that was the procedure for the, for the priest, for the high priest. All right. so here on the horns of the altar, the burnt offering, and all the rest of the blood he shall pour out at the base of the altar, and he shall remove all its fat, just as the fat was removed from the sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest shall offer it up in smoke on the altar for a soothing aroma. I mentioned last night, I thought I had caught uh, an error in those notes from 20 years ago, and I was correct. That um, uh, some people try, and I think Colonel Thiem did this too, pointed out that the burnt offering and the and the uh, peace offering were sweet smelling savors right and then even the grain offering when you put the the memorial portion of the grain offering on and it goes up in smoke as a sweet smelling savor but then to make the statement that the sin offering is never a sweet smelling savor i think that's incorrect because i'm looking at it right there in verse 31 for a soothing aroma and there it is okay and this is why uh, again i was taking the time to do the, uh, yeah, this is the reich nekoch, the uh, sweet-smelling savor there. I took the time to apply the visual filter to all these Hebrew expressions so that I wouldn't miss one, so that I couldn't overlook it. And um, it's colored yellow, it's got the purple squigglies around it. And uh, and sure enough, that's the Hebrew sweet-smelling savor right there, connected to the sin offering. So um, anyway, like I say, I'm not afraid to... to mark the, the incorrect statements that are made, but the uh, the statement that was made in, in uh, uh, chapter 1 about the burnt offering being a sweet-smelling savor and about sin offerings not being a sweet-smelling savor, uh, that's, that's not correct. Because this is a sin offering and this is a, a uh, soothing aroma as unto the Lord. "...so thus the priest shall make atonement for him, and he will be forgiven." That's also important, the kafar atonement, that we recognize that atonement is more than a positional truth issue, it's also an experiential issue. So there's the positional atonement when we get saved that we are made righteous in the sight of God and then there's the experiential when we have to be restored to fellowship. That's also spoken of with atonement vocabulary. And so the priest shall make atonement for him and he will be forgiven. There's also lamb options and again the blood goes to the horns of the altar removing the fat. And of course they are offerings by fire to the Lord. Thus the priest shall make atonement for him in regard to his sin which he has committed and he shall be forgiven. Now I want to make sure that we don't lose the details on this and I also want to kind of address some more philosophical things when it comes to this. So Point two in your outline, we're showing the different levels of, of sacrifice from the priest to the congregation to the leaders to the common people. Realizing what is a national sin, what is a corporate sin, okay? Much of what the Old Testament is dealing with is dealing with Israel as a nation. The sins of Israel as a nation. Those things that have to be forgiven, that God has to forgive Israel as a nation, okay? Okay? We, we talked about this in the book of Hebrews, the sins that were committed under the first covenant, those are the sins that have to be dealt with so that He can provide for them the new covenant. That's different from you and me when we commit personal sins, okay? You and I, we commit personal sins, uh, sins of commission, sins of omissions, and the sins that we commit are personal sins. The, the Bible's dealing with the national sins of, of Israel. We've got to pay attention to these details. All right. The activity of bringing a sin offering deals with the experiential nature of atonement, whereas the burnt offering deals with the positional nature of atonement. So when you get saved, and on a positional basis, all of your sins are laid on Jesus Christ, He takes the guilt for all of them, He pays the price for all of them, He gives you His righteousness, and you're saved. You have eternal life. Praise God. But then, of course, for the rest of your time on this earth, we're sinners saved by grace. We continue to commit acts of personal sin. That's why we need the, the confession. That's why we need the experiential justification that comes through our confession. We also have um, different corporate sins. Okay? The high priest offers the bull. The congregation offers a bull. The leaders offer the male goat. The common people offer the female goat or a female lamb or two turtle doves or two pigeons. At the deepest poverty, you could show up with a tenth of an effa of fine flour. <laughs> I mean, that's for the absolute bottom, you know, the, the, basically your, your destitute vagrants that can bring one-tenth of an effa of flour. All of which shows us, of course, the scale, the idea that uh, the principle of the stricter judgment, let not many of you become teachers knowing that you will encounter the stricter judgment. God holds accountable the, uh, those who should know better. I think we can appreciate that as well. Matthew twenty-three, fourteen: Woe to you, Pharisees, hypocrites! You will receive the greater condemnation. James three, one: Let not many of you become teachers, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. Beyond what we have here in uh, chapter four, and and it, like I say, it crosses over into chapter five as well. More details there on the sin offering. If a person sins after he hears a public adjuration to testify, yeah, you know you should be speaking up and you don't. You stay silent. Well, you're going to bear the guilt. Or if you touch any unclean thing, the carcass of an unclean beast, the carcass of an unclean cattle, or carcass of an unclean swarming thing, you're unclean. You need, a, uh, you need to bring a sin offering. If he touches human uncleanness of whatever sort, you become unclean. It's hidden from him. So yeah, this continues to, uh, to address these issues here. And then we get introduced to the guilt offering. Different terminology on guilt offering. So I gave it a different color code. Instead of the red X, I gave it a gray X. And instead of a black uh, highlight, I gave it a gray highlight just so that I could keep these things straight because my head was spinning trying to, trying to keep these details straight. Beyond what we have in this chapter, we also have additional instructions for the sin offering that are found in chapter 6, Leviticus 6, verses 24 through 30. Okay, we're going to move from the, the, the sin offering to the guilt offering, but before I do, let me just say a couple of things. Because I'll do you a favor here that took me years and years and years to finally figure it out for myself, okay? And I can save you all that time and all that anguish, okay? I think when we as church-age believers when we as New Testament believers, when we think back to Leviticus and we think back, we're trying to find something by analogy to relate it to, right? And so we think about getting saved, we think of that as our positional atonement, and we think about that moment when, when you know, we learned about eternal life, and we believed in Jesus Christ, and we got saved, and we, and we were very thankful to be saved, right? And so we think back to, to that event and when we try to find the analogy for that, we tend to focus on the burnt offering. We, uh, we focus on the peace offering. We, we we tend to focus on the on the offerings that speak to the theology of atonement, the theology of reconciliation. Okay, and I'm not saying that's wrong, and I'm not saying that's bad, but I am saying that as long as we're relating it by analogy, we can it can be helpful, but can also be problematic. Because the analogy is not 100% correspondence. Right away the fact is when you realize, you know what, burnt offerings were brought again and again and again and I I get saved only once. Okay, You get saved only once. So right away the analogy is going to break down. There's going to be other places where the analogy breaks down as well. But the repetitive nature of peace offerings, the repetitive nature of burnt offerings, repetitive nature of the grain offerings... um, we can, we can see that the, the theology connects to, to salvation but the repetitive nature of those offerings is at odds with our experience where once and for all we are saved. Once and for all, sinner receive it. Once and for all, brother believe it. Right, That the experience of our redemption is a one-time only deal. We don't get saved over and over again. So we can appreciate where the analogy helps but we also have to be cautious where the analogy does not help. Where the analogy actually uh, fails to help. Okay? And, and the same thing is going to happen too with the sin offering and the trespass offering. Because if we think by analogy that we're thinking of this in terms of First 1 John 1, nine in terms of rebound, confession of sin, um, that I'm out of fellowship, I want to be in fellowship. Okay. The analogy can be helpful. But the analogy can also be harmful. And here's why. Okay, Because, we and, and maybe uh, I mentioned this a little bit when we were talking about the laver, right? That the, 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 the laver in the tabernacle was there so the priests could wash their hands and their feet and that was their cleansing procedure before they went into the holy place. And I mentioned then, I said by analogy sometimes we think of that in terms of First John 1 John 1.9, confessing our sins, being restored to fellowship. And I remember specifically saying that's why we have silent prayer before every Bible class. Because we want to make sure before we start Bible class that we're cleansed, we're in fellowship, we're holy and, and prepared for, for the Word of God. Right? So as an analogy these things can be helpful for us but they can also be harmful because the you can press the analogy too far. And you can go uh, there's not 100% correspondence with our confession of sin and their sin offering or their trespass offering or the priest's uh, cleansing procedure at the laver. There's, somewhat, a, there's, there's a somewhat of a correspondence but not 100%. So let me do you guys a favor, okay? Here today in the church age we have a great big um, emphasis on on spirituality versus carnality, right? We have a great big emphasis on being in fellowship or out of fellowship, of walking in the light or walking in darkness, okay? There's a lot of ways that the New Testament describes our spiritual walk. It's different in the Old Testament. It's different. If you had to write a book on spirituality versus carnality in the Old Testament, good luck. Okay? It would be entirely different. In the Old Testament the contrast is not light and dark, it's not uh, spirit versus flesh, it's not uh, in fellowship versus out of fellowship. The difference in the Old Testament is clean versus unclean. Okay? And it, is, it centers on a ceremonial or a ritual purity. A ritually clean versus ritually unclean reality. And it's not always the equivalent of sin, okay? As I've said again and again, I've probably said this 20 times now, a husband and a wife who have marital relations, they're not sinning when they have marital relations because they're married. It would be a sin if they weren't married, right? It would be a sin if it was extramarital or premarital or homosexual or any of the other Leviticus 18 stuff we're going to get into, okay? A husband and a wife in the covenant relationship of marriage it's sanctified, it's holy, they're not sinning by having sex. But they are ritually unclean for the the rest of that day and and then until they wash and until they're, they're cleansed and until the next day, until sun goes down. Okay? So Don't think in terms of carnality, spirituality and carnality. Don't think in fellowship, out of fellowship. Don't think sin versus staying in fellowship. Okay, It's all about the ritual purity. And so the question on these sin offerings, the question on these trespass offerings, the question on all of these offerings, is the offerer ritually clean, ritually unclean? And if he's ritually unclean, these offerings are the provision for him to become ritually clean so that as a ritually clean Jewish person he is then eligible to take part in Passover in uh, tabernacles, in, in uh, unleavened bread in the, in the various uh, uh, festivals, feasts of the Jewish people, okay? Because the unclean are being uh, kept out. I hope that helps I hope that helps. Alright Let's get to chapter 5. Ah. See, I've got a typo there I've got to fix. All right. We have now trespass offerings. King James calls it trespass. New King James calls it trespass. New American Standard and NIV and CSB call it the guilt offering. And really, this, this is the second element of the sin that we have to deal with. Because there's the sin itself, but then there's the guilt of that sin. And the sin offering deals with the sin, but the guilt is, is dealt with with the trespass offering or the guilt offering. And the vocabulary for this in the Hebrew is asham. This speaks to the guilt, this speaks to the offense. The trespass, it speaks to the consequences of the sin and then the, the necessity for recompense, the necessity to to be restored, to make it right. And particularly if there was a human being that you trespassed against, that you sinned against. So there would be a, a, reconcil- or a restoration that would have to be paid. So we have the, the trespass offerings. And we have them in chapter 5 uh, verse 6, 7, 15, 16, 18, 19, several uses there as well as in chapter 6, verses 6 and 17, chapter 7 a whole bunch of uses there of asham, of guilt. And so I colored them, you'll spot it with the gray with the gray X instead of the red X and the gray highlight instead of the black highlight. And you'll see a lot of times they're, they're going to be used interchangeably with the sin offerings. So these are what we see here. All right. So he shall bring his guilt offering to the Lord for his sin which he has committed, a female from the flock, lamb or goat as a sin offering, so the priest shall make atonement on his behalf for his sin. But if he cannot afford a lamb then he shall bring to the Lord his guilt offering for that which he has sinned, two turtle doves or two young pigeons for uh, one for sin offering, the other for a burnt offering. And he shall bring them to the priest who shall offer, that's korban, shall uh, offer first that which is for sin offering, shall nip its head in front of its neck, but shall not sever it. Last night I, I failed to highlight this, Carol caught me last night, that uh, the offerer does all of the animal killing of the bull, of the goat, of the sheep, except for the birds. Okay? The, if, if it's a bird that's coming, then the priest himself is the one that rings the neck and kills the bird. Alright, so that was a detail we had last night that I failed to mention. We see it again here. Guilt offering also covers unintentional sins. We have in verse 15, sins unintentionally. We have it in verse 18, sins unintentionally. For the error which he sinned unintentionally. Neither one of these offerings can handle the high-handed sin, the willful defiance, the... the um, defiant sin. These are only for the unintentional sin. There is no prescribed offering for willful defiant sin. So when you when you know what you're doing and you're in open defiance of Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God of Israel and you are just blatantly raising your fist against Him in open defiance, these, uh, these offerings weren't designed for that. Your only hope there, like David with Bathsheba, You know, he knew what he was doing. He committed murder, he committed adultery, he committed I mean, this was not unintentional on David's uh, uh, rebellion against the Lord. So there's no sin offering he can give. There's no trespass offering. The only provision at that point then for the nation of Israel is once a year they get a, they get a national do-over. Once a year they get the, the, uh, the Day of Atonement that covers everybody, covers the whole nation and everybody within that nation. Everything gets, it's like rebooting windows, right? <laughs> it's like a complete do-over for the year. And now uh, after the Day of Atonement they can proceed forward after that. It's curious though, so let's see Numbers 15 verses 30 and 31. Yeah. The person who does anything defiantly, whether the native or the alien, that one is blaspheming the Lord. That person shall be cut off from among his people because he has despised the word of the Lord, has broken his commandment. That person shall be completely cut off. His guilt will be upon him. There's no sin offering, there's no trespass offering for this defiant sin. All they could do was wait for that day of atonement once a year. For the church age though, this gets, this gets quoted in the book of Hebrews, and I hope I scared you with this when we were teaching in Hebrews chapter 10. Okay? Because if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment. You know in the church age we don't have that annual do-over. We don't have the annual day of atonement. We have the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ and so if we become willful, if we become defiant, if we become with the high hand living in just open defiance of the Lord God what can we expect? Remember to whom much is given shall much be required. Our accountability is a stricter judgment than anything the Levitical priest had ever approached. So anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think we will deserve? Okay? Church-age saints living in open defiance of the revealed Word of God. It is terrifying to fall into the hands of the living God. So these warnings are there in the Hebrews passage for a reason. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Okay? Okay? Now keep in mind we're talking not talking about losing salvation, we're talking about the temporal life consequences. The hand of God's loving discipline when it comes down hard on, on New Testament believers. Alright. Like the sin offering, the activity of bringing a guilt offering deals with the experiential nature of atonement. Not the positional nature, the experiential nature of atonement. Okay? And you'll see the Kafar vocabulary uh, scattered throughout chapter 5 and chapter 6, all in connection with the guilt offering. Unlike the sin offering, the sacrificial animal for the guilt offering did not vary in value in accordance with the spiritual leadership and example of the sinner. So uh, that's a difference between the sin offering and the guilt offering. A ram without defect from the flock, according to your valuation in silver and shekels in terms of the shekel of sanctuary, that's the guilt offering. All right, again, verse 18 a ram without defect. Unlike the sin offering, the guilt offering involved the required restitution. There's restitution that's mentioned here. We didn't see anything like that. There was no restitution that was prescribed for uh, anything prior to this, right? Burnt offering, sin offering, peace offering, uh, grain offering. Never did we see restitution at all until we get to the guilt of the sin. And now there's the concept of restitution that gets brought in. So he shall make restitution for that which he has sinned against the holy thing. shall add to it a fifth part of it and give it to the priest. So this concept of restitution comes into play as well. Alright. Beyond what we have here in chapter 5 we have the uh, additional details that come in chapter 7. Additional information on the application of the guilt offering is found in chapter 7. Uh, I talked about this a little bit last night. Why, why break it up like that? <laughs> okay. Why do we have, we go through these, these details with burnt offering, grain offering, peace offering, sin offering, trespass offering, and by the time we survive all that <laughs> we want to say, okay, we're good. We've covered the first five chapters of Leviticus. No, we're not yet done. Chapter 6 and chapter 7 go into even greater detail. And chapter 6 and chapter 7 go all the way back to burnt offering providing additional details related to these things that we've already studied through. So additional um, material on the guilt offering we'll get to when we get to chapter 7. and That'll be Sunday morning as we get to uh, the chapter 7 material. Okay? i just give a sneak preview tonight. Again, you're going to see the same color coding Uh, I applied the visual filter all the way through the first seven chapters. At first I had it for the whole book of Leviticus and it just got out of hand. So I limited it to uh, chapters one through seven and uh, we'll stop seeing the, the little symbols and the graphics when we get past this chapter. But this is the law of the guilt offering. It is most holy. In the place where they slay the burnt offering they are to slay the guilt offering. He shall sprinkle his blood around on the altar. So essentially Jewish people are coming to the tabernacle, they're passing within that first gate to come inside the courtyard, and the first thing they come to is the altar, and that's where the, the offering is going to be offered up. And then to the north side of that altar is where they're going to stand off, and that's where these, these animals are going to be killed. They're going to slay the uh, the burnt offering. In the same place where they slay the burnt offering, they're to slay the guilt offering. and He shall sprinkle his blood around on the altar, the priest is going to do the, the blood sprinkling. He shall offer from all its fat, the fat tail, the fat that covers the entrails, the two kidneys with the fat that is on them which is on the loins, the lobe of the liver he shall remove with the kidneys. I think these priests had to have been expert on, on you know chopping up animals and, and finding these organs and finding these, these component parts so that the, uh, the right part goes to the right place. The two kidneys with the fat that is on them... This, I take some of this stuff personally, <laughs> by the way, only because um, back in, it was in, I became pastor in 95, and then in uh, January of 96 is when they found my kidney disease. And so I went for months with different checkups and different follow ups and things, and finally, and eventually later, like in the fall, summer or fall sometime of 96, I had to have a biopsy done. And so I went in and I had the biopsy done on my kidneys, and um, you know I wasn't asleep. I was a little bit drugged and sedated and whatever. Was feeling kind of loopy, laying on the table face down, and the doctor was gonna do the biopsy. And I'm gonna I'm just laying there waiting for the needle to go into my kidneys behind my behind my back there. And uh, <laughs> I'll never forget. Because you could feel it, you could feel the needle going in and you could feel the the, the clip and the snip and the, uh, okay, you know. And then the the doctor pulled it out and they they got the little sample and and honest to goodness, here's the the conversation that they had. Talking behind my back while I'm laying there and uh, the, 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 Dr. Nader was the guy and he he took the, and he put it on the thing and he said, there we go, that's a good, no I don't think that's good. And the the nurse was like, I think that's good. No, I don't think that's good. I think it's good. No, I think that's fat. (laughs) Okay. He didn't want fat, he wanted kidney. So he went and took a second snip. No, that's definitely fat. Got a third snip. I'm starting to wonder does this doctor even know what he's doing? And then, okay, that's good. That's good kidney sample right there. And so that's what they had to do the biopsy on the kidney. They couldn't do the biopsy on the fat. So Anyway, so when I when I read this passage and I read about the fat and the lobes and the kidneys and the, the two kidneys and the fat that is on them, I have a perspective to say, okay, I remember that. Anyway, biopsy came back, no cancer, so I was clear on that. So, we've got verses 1 through 10 here. All of this you can see again, the, the, grain, the guilt offering, the guilt offering is like the sin offering, And uh, one law for them, the priest who makes atonement with it shall have it. The priest who presents any man's burnt offering, the priest shall have for himself the skin of the burnt offering which he has presented. Likewise every grain offering. So yeah, we're getting a big summary of all these offerings right here in Leviticus chapter 7. Peace offerings, Thanksgiving offerings. All right, so stay tuned for that. We'll, we'll, We'll have more on that on Sunday when we get to those. Let's get to chapter 6. Leviticus chapter 6. All right, verses 8 and following now. After giving the introduction to each of the five offerings, the Lord gives additional information on how the five offerings were to be administered. Okay, And this takes us all the way from chapter 6 and verse 8 all the way down to chapter 7 and verse 38. So basically it's the remainder of chapter 6 and chapter 7. Additional information. Now you can think of it as maybe the first time through more of those verses were kind of geared towards the people. The, the people bringing the offerings so that you knew what you were supposed to do when you got there. You, you knew what to anticipate. When, uh, when you arrived, and of course, the priests and the Levites were going to help you out. And if you forgot any of the details, they'd be there to remind you on, on the procedures. But if chapters 1 through 5 are more on the people side of things, these additional instructions in 6 and 7 tend to be more oriented towards the priests, more uh, oriented towards the Levites themselves. So, additional instructions for the burnt offering in verses 8 through 13. Specific instructions dealt with the disposal of the ashes from the altar. Instructions also emphasized that the fire on this altar was never to go out, and that's uh, that's uh, an important detail. And I think we should pay attention to that, just as a concept. As a as a, again, we're taking the analogy forward into our application. So let's look at it here, eight through thirteen. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, command Aaron and his sons saying, this is the law for the burnt offering, for the Olah. Uh, the burnt offering itself shall remain on the hearth of the altar all night until the morning and the, first, uh, and the fire on the altar is to be kept burning on it. So all through the night. The priest is to put on his linen robe and shall put on undergarments next to his flesh. He shall take up the ashes to which the fire reduces the burnt offering on the altar and place them beside the altar. Then he shall take off his garments and put on other garments to carry the ashes outside the camp to a clean place. Alright, so they have a certain uniform that they're wearing, the, the, the robes that the priests are wearing. But when it comes time to actually transport these ashes outside the camp you can't be doing that in your priestly robes. You've got to change clothes. So take off his garments, put on other garments and carry the ashes outside the camp to a clean place. Again, ceremonially clean, ritually clean. It centers on the ritual purity, not the, the idea of the hygiene of, 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 uh, of the land. All right. And the fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not go out, but the priest shall burn wood on it every morning, and he shall lay out the burnt offering on it and offer up in smoke the fat portions of the peace offerings on it. And so while they're clearing out the ashes and they're clearing out the remains of the, of the offerings from the night before, I've got to make sure that they keep the fire going and add fresh wood so that the fire never goes out. Fire shall be kept burning continually on the altar. It is not to go out. Okay? And so, again, by analogy, and I think we have elements of our priesthood. Of course, we're not Levitical priests, but we are Melchizedek priests in the church age. We have the heavenly access that we have in Christ as we enter through the veil uh, that is His flesh. We stand before the Father in Christ. But do we, how often do we let our fire go out? Okay? Just in, in metaphor, right? When we think about our own diligence, when we think about our own when it says pray without ceasing, do you think that relates to this? This not letting the fire go out? Do you think when uh, when we uh, stand before the Lord do you think that relates to this fire either going out or not going out? And I think all too often church age believers have a take it or leave it kind of idea. That they can uh, in terms of their prayer life, in terms of their church attendance in terms of their spiritual services unto the Lord. Okay? I'm not saying church attendance is like a gold star, you know, under legalism principles, but what I'm saying is we are functioning in our priesthood when we're functioning in the local church. And if we have a take it or leave it attitude whereby um you know a lot of Christians have this this concept, I, I think that's the, the equivalent of letting the fire go out on the altar. So uh, we have the the imperative that we have, and we have it here. All right, additional instructions given for the grain offering in verses fourteen through twenty-three. Grain offering we saw last night. Remember, this could be raw grain, uncooked. This could be cooked. Uh, it could be cooked in a griddle. It could be cooked in an oven. It could be cooked on a fan on a pan. So this is the law of the grain offering. The sons of Aaron shall present it before the Lord in front of the altar. Then one of them shall lift up from it a handful of the fine flour of the grain offering with its oil and the incense that is on the grain offering, and he shall offer it up in smoke on the altar as a soothing aroma. It is the memorial offering to the Lord. Very little of this grain offering actually got burned. Very little went up to the Lord in in, in smoke. Most of it was for the priests. Okay. Most of it was for the priest to eat. Somebody asked me last night, does this mean that, that they wouldn't go out in the morning and, and the, the Levites wouldn't go out in the morning and get the manna? You know, this appears to be their primary food. This appears to be their primary. Uh, they're ministering before the Lord. They're, they're eating from the altar. That it seems to me like this is their normal diet right here. They're not going out in the morning to get manna like the other 12 tribes are doing. They're eating from the, uh, the service of their, uh, of their worship. So, a handful of the fine flour. They're bringing a much larger quantity. The first handful goes on the altar, goes to the Lord. The rest of it comes to the priests. So, it is a smoothing aroma, a memorial offering to the Lord. What is left of it, Aaron and his sons are to eat. It shall be eaten as unleavened cakes in a holy place. They are to eat it in the court of the tent of meeting. It shall not be baked with leaven. I have given it as their share from my offerings by fire. It is most holy like the sin offering and the guilt offering. Every male from the sons of Aaron may eat of it. It is a permanent ordinance throughout your generations uh, from the offerings by fire to the Lord. Whoever touches them will become consecrated. That's kind of a curious thing too. That led to a lot of legends and a lot of rumors and things about swearing vows by the altar or swearing by the sacrifice of the altar and things that touch things. Anyway, you see why the head spins? You see why you can lose, you can lose the forest through the trees getting lost in these details? Alright, uh, green offering continues all the way down to verse 23. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, this is the offering which Aaron and his sons are to present to the Lord. So this is the korban, which they are to korban, right? You're, you're to offer the offering. You're to give the gift. On the day when he is anointed, the tenth of an ephah of fine flour is a regular grain offering, half of it in the morning, half of it in the evening, prepared with oil on a griddle. When it is well stirred, you shall bring it, you shall present it, a, the grain offering in baked pieces as a soothing aroma on the Lord. I can't prove it, but I'm wondering if this is where pancake breakfast got their start. You know the grain offering on the griddle is soothing aroma to the Lord. The anointed priest who will be in his place among his sons shall offer it by a permanent ordinance and or shall be entirely offered up in smoke to the Lord. So every grain offering of the priest shall be burned entirely. It shall not be eaten. So I hope you saw there was a difference there, okay It's a grain offering that a Jewish person brings versus the grain offering that the priests themselves bring. Okay? If it's the people bringing it, then a handful goes to the Lord and the priest can keep the rest. If it's the priest himself bringing it well then all of it goes to the Lord. Difference on that. Finally the additional instructions for the sin offering in verses 24 through 30. So these are the additional instructions given to the sin offerings the law of the sin offering in the place where the burnt offering is slain, the sin offering shall be slain before the Lord, it is most holy. The priest who offers it for sin shall eat it, it shall be eaten in a holy place in the court of the tent of meeting. Whoever touches its flesh will become consecrated when any of its blood splashes on a garment. In a holy place you shall wash what is splashed on. Also earthenware vessel in which it was boiled shall be broken. If it was boiled in a bronze vessel then it shall be scoured and rinsed with water. Every male among the priests may eat of it, it is most holy. But no sin offering of which any of the blood is brought into the tent of meeting to make atonement in the holy place shall be eaten, it shall be burned with fire. All right, well then there you have that. And I don't know, are you finding these colors useful? Find them useful, find them not useful? Once you make this, once you make a visual filter... Okay, so we reached the bottom of the notes and we have seven minutes left. Let me show you, how do you make these? What do you do with a visual filter? Why are the visual filters useful? Okay? Um, they're useful so that as you're scanning down the page it catches your eye and, you, and, and you're, you're classifying these things, the like things together, and the other things you can, you can classify them together. There's a lot of reasons why you will find these things helpful. Okay? And in fact, Logos includes not only the natural highlighting that... Uh, that are popular in other sources, but they include, for example, uh, solid colors, highlights, emphasis markups. Let me show you some of these other ones. Also, once you get past the um, emphasis markups, they also have the inductive precept. And I'm not as familiar with this, um, but I've ripped a lot of these off for my own use, okay. Uh, I think it's a K. Arthur system or it's a precept inductive study system. Okay, maybe some of you know more about this than I do. But some of these symbols were part of that, the, the precept, the inductive Bible study precept system. Okay? Logos went ahead and provided those in there for people that, that use I've never used that before, but I do like the symbols. And so the symbol for atonement, that comes from that. I've been making use of that. Symbols for believe and blood and, and just different things. So I've been readily adapting these just for my own purposes even though I don't use the K. Arthur stuff or the, the inductive, the precept uh, stuff. Okay? You can then create your own. Create your own custom highlights and do different things there. I did that. Um, I, I made my own custom highlight every time the Hebrew text of Asherah was translated blessed I would cross off the word "blessed" and write the word "happy" in there, or any time the Greek New Testament uh, has uh, "makarios" and translated as "blessed," I would cross off the word "blessed" and put the word "happy" in there. And and this is just a, another visual filter that you can apply so that it catches your eye when you see it, and you're reminded of something that you had previously studied or something you had previously searched for. So, um, if, if this is something that interests you, um, I, I did do a class on this, it is on YouTube in the, in the playlist for Logos training. I'll just show you real quickly tonight some of the things that, that you can do with this. So when you, do a, when you do a search and you want to highlight that search in fact um, I had done a couple of these earlier in Revelation 2 and 3 for example. I find it useful reading through these seven churches and, and finding differences between the singular and the plural. Like you, your deeds, your toil, put to the test, found them to be false. Those are all singulars. Those aren't plurals. And this is the, this is the rebuke that's going to the angelos, the angel, the messenger of the church of Ephesus. It wasn't the whole church that left the first love, it was the, it was the messenger that left his first love. And so I find it useful to read through this text and pay attention to the singulars and then pay attention to the plurals. Because we have plurals. When you get to Revelation 2.10 do not fear what you, singular, are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison. And there it switches to the plural. So that you will be tested. Plural. Y'all, plural, will be tested. And you, plural, will have tribulation for ten days. But you, singular, pastor, on the loss of the church of, of Smyrna, you be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. I will give you, singular, the crown of life. Something similar happens with Pergamum. Uh, most of them are singular, but then there's Antibus, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among y'all, among you plural. Where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, singular. Again, back to that pastor. Most of these rebukes are against the angelos, the angel of these churches, the, the messenger, the pastor of these churches. Mathiatira, there's a bunch of plural yous because the Jezebel woman was sinning with many of the, the people there in the church. So there's the plural yous that are there. Alright, so here's, here's what you can do when, you, when you're starting to make these. You do your search. You do your search, you want to find all the singulars. I went with singular pronouns, singular verbs, second person singular verbs, okay? And then I went with plural pronouns, second person plural pronouns, and second person uh, plural verbs. And I just did the search and then started coloring, okay? And once you finish the search you can save that search as a, uh, as a visual filter, okay? Okay? So uh, real quick before we close in prayer if, uh, if you can think of something you want to highlight in your Bible every time it shows up, okay, and, and we'll just let's just take um, maybe I should save this for um, anyway, let me just do a search real quick and then we'll close in prayer. So we want to do a Bible search, all passages everywhere the uh, the greek word charis appears all right charis and we're going to do the search 61 results in 59 verses okay now I don't want to do the search all day every day I don't want to do the search every single time I just want to highlight every time grace appears in the new testament every time charis appears in the new testament and so once this search is finished Come up here and save this as a visual filter. You can also save it as a passage list, you can save it as a word list, but I'm going to save this as a visual filter. And I'm going to call this my my grace filter. Okay? And every time Chorus appears, this is the formatting I want to apply. Every time grace appears these should look familiar to you. Every time grace appears I want it to be I want it to have an exclamation point next to it. There you go. So we just created a visual filter. So now we're going to have red exclamation points next to every time the word grace appears. Right? Ephesians 2, 8, 9 for by grace you have been saved through faith, it is not of yourselves. The filter oh it's not coming on. <laughs> the filter should come on, and we should start seeing exclamation points every time carus appears in the New Testament. And watch, it's going to prove me wrong. All passage, New American Standard Bible, carus exclamation. Ah, uh, you know what? It's got to be the lemma. Okay, I'll fix that on Sunday. It's going to be the lemma. So that every time it shows up, it shows up. Okay? And I tell you, you're going to start loving these. Once you have them in place, you don't have to make them again. Once you have them in place, they're always there, like these Leviticus ones. And uh, and then if you decide to turn them off, you just come up here and turn them off. And say, here's my visual filters. I don't want to have this... Uh, I don't want to have this Leviticus filter on here anymore. See, there's the grace filter. I don't want to have that on anymore. Here's the uh, the Leviticus filter, the sacrifice filter. Sacrificial vocabulary in Leviticus. All right, I'm tired of it. Turn it off. No, I changed my mind. I want it back on. No, I'm tired of it. Turn it off. Okay? You can just toggle it on and off, depending on what you're doing. I might decide that uh, I'm going to leave it on while I'm studying at home, but I'm going to turn it off when I'm in the pulpit, because maybe it's just too distracting, and and people don't want to be staring at at my little my little goofy pictures and colors and things. Okay. However, you want to run that. All right. If you have any questions on that, talk to me after class. And uh, uh, Christine, by the way, people are flagging these videos. Uh, trying to keep an index of every time we do a a, a little bit of a Logos class at the end so that it'll have a special tag next to it and people want to go back and catch those uh, and and watch those over and over again. So that's that's a tag that Christine's putting on there. So anyway, appreciate that too. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this class. Thank you for now seven completed weeks. And Father, we just come before you thankful for your mercy and grace, asking for your ongoing provision to uh, continue to keep... Uh, to keep the momentum going, Father, which means um, keeping, uh, keeping me healthy and strong and my voice clear from allergies, especially in cedar season. And Father, uh, keeping all of us hungry, keeping the appetite hungry so that we can continue to study to show ourselves approved. We have now seven weeks complete and 45 more to go by your grace and in your, uh, in your mercy, Father. Uh, trumpet pending. We continue to, to work our way through this class. We thank you, Father, and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.